Hey, it's Jennifer. Can you believe we are edging toward the end of October? Unbelievable in so many ways this entire year. I wanted to jump in here quick and just give you the most recent and really quite exciting update on our listener support challenge underway. It was, I think, in July that we set ourselves the goal of adding a hundred new listener supporters in the second half of this odd but yet oddly growing year. And I am so excited and thankful to report that we are now at 81 new supporters. Thank you. I have said this before, but a garden does not grow overnight, nor does a gardener, nor does a gardening community. As we head towards our fifth anniversary producing Cultivating Place, our gardening community has grown and grown healthy and expansive and inclusive and rich in that togetherness. A community like this grows over many seasons like rings added to a tree, inches added to a child. I appreciate that we have all got to make realistic decisions about how we allocate our many resources, from our time to our attention to our money and what we value and vote for with that time and that money, like listening to Cultivating Place and or supporting it if you're able. For all of you who find value here, thank you for your many contributions, large and small, one time and recurring to this work, this Cultivating Place journey. You make this journey both possible and a joint communal effort. Together we plant the changes and grow the world for the better. If you would like to be a new listener supporter of this impactful work and help us meet this challenge with just 19 more donors to go, woo! please go to the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com and follow the links by clicking the support button. Like all place-based endeavors, the place-based art of gardening and the loving embracing of place by any gardener adds to the world at large. You add to the world at large. Now sit back and be enriched by this conversation about the power of place with a place-based garden activist. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Judith Phillips is a renowned landscape designer based in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where for the past 30 years she has been an advocate, activist, and leader in native plant and climate-adapted garden design, the goals of which are beautiful and livable spaces within the limits of an extreme environment, providing benefits to not only humans, but the land and wildlife of her place as well. Judith is the author of five books on native plants and garden design of the Southwest. In February of 2020, Judith was recognized by the Land and Water Summit, held annually, for her amazing contributions to the ecological landscaping in New Mexico and the Southwest generally. Judith joined me for this conversation from her home and studio in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Welcome, Judith. 
Well, and I'm very pleased to meet you, Jennifer. So I've given a little bit of an introduction, some of uh, which actually opens up really interesting questions right off the bat. But I'd love to have you sort of take over from where I just gave this simplistic one-line description of what you do and describe for listeners what your relationship is to plants personally and professionally there where you live. When I first moved to New Mexico, I wondered why I did this to myself. Um, (laughs) And actually, I moved here in July and and it was a good monsoon year, and that was really amazing. But I don't think I came to terms with the desert until winter. And um, I think that's because it sort of stripped out the the cold. You know, we have cold winters here. And back then, you know, winter temperatures were, nighttime temperatures were routinely in, you know, the single digits at night. And during the day, could vacillate anywhere from from the 30s to uh, the 60s. So there were plenty of days to go out hiking, and I started going and looking. One of the things that was was very off-putting to me is I came here from working at a nursery in Indiana, and the plants in the landscapes here were the same plants as we sold at the nursery in Indiana and I knew what those plants took there. And it seemed to me ridiculous that people were growing them here, but that was just, I mean, that was it. There were very few natives. Um, and, and really partly that was because there weren't natives available in nurseries. The plants, the natives that were in landscapes where people were going and digging them up and, and planting them in their landscapes, in their gardens. And I really didn't think that was a good idea. I wanted to use plants that that were native here in landscapes. And um, the way to do that was to grow them so that I could have them available to me to use. And then the second step to that, of course, was convincing people that that's really what they wanted. And I just developed really early on a, a a huge respect and admiration for plants native to arid climates. They are just some of the most amazing plants on the planet. And here I am now. Just in that brief uh, description, you've given us a lot of food for thought in some of the really pivotal changes in behavior and attitude and awareness uh, for gardeners and especially maybe ecological gardeners uh, over the last 25 to to 50 years even. Um, And some of the progress we're making and some of the pitfalls we are still encountering. So first of all, like who were the people and plants and places that grew you to be someone that was working in a nursery in Indiana? And then what took you to Albuquerque and what year would that have been? Um, well, I, I grew up in a small town that now is completely absorbed by Buffalo, New York. And my uncle had a, a cabin in the hills south of, of Buffalo. And all summer, every weekend, we would be out there and all of us cousins, big family, and all of the cousins would be out exploring the creeks and hillsides. And so I 
from that, I developed a real love of, um, I mean, I could lay on the ground and, and look at moss for a ridiculous amount of time, I think, for a kid. Um, and, um, and I just loved waiting in, in the creek and looking at what grew along it and you know, just hiking, essentially, but in the creek. And, and here, uh, arroyos are the same kind of, they're dry most of the time, um, but they're the same kind of really interesting place where there's a greater diversity of, of plants and, and it's just a more active place. My last major in college was anthropology and I thought I was coming out here to be an anthropologist. I was in Indiana because my ex-husband was getting his master's at Purdue and they had a sociology department. They didn't have anthropology. And I think my life has been a series of, of happy accidents. I was r really, I needed a, a job. And a friend of mine asked me what I wanted to do. And I, we were living in a farmhouse out in the country, surrounded by corn and soybeans. And I would drive, going into uh, Lafayette, I would drive past this nursery and said, well, I, that nursery looks really interesting. And he said, well, go apply for a job. And I said, well, I don't know anything about plants. And he said, go apply for a job. And so, <laughs> and he said, and, and keep going back and they'll hire you. And that's exactly what happened. And Emmett Kohler, who was the grower and the, one of the brothers that owned the nursery, is just wonderful. He would lend me books out of his library and he would, if I asked about a, a plant um, that I had been reading about or there'd be, if there was one on the nursery, there'd be one in a box behind the seat of my car when I was leaving in the evening. Um, and it was, <laughs> it was just, I learned so much there. Um, and um, he really mentored me in a way that I, I really think that partly he's responsible for me still being this involved. It was just a, a really great experience. Got to Albuquerque in um, 1971, I think, um, 71 or 72. And there had just been one of them. We had, one of the things that still happens here, but not as regularly as it used to, is every seven to 10 years before it was fairly consistent, there would be a major freeze. Um, so for a week, the temperature would be well below zero and um, and rarely getting up in the, actually sometimes it didn't get, the temperature didn't get above freezing for at least several days. And uh, from living in Indiana, that still didn't seem like a big deal to me, um, but because it's a dry cold, that's, you know, kind of the joke is it's a dry heat. Well, also a dry cold it doesn't settle into your bones the way it does um, when when it's damp and the introduction to Albuquerque of plants having died back to the ground and then regrowing to be eight feet tall was a surprise we live in this place of extremes that uh, is which is goes to that respect I have for the plants it's amazing how resilient these plants are that they can take these extremes and adapt to them. And that's the other thing that I think is just really amazing about, uh, and, and 
the way that I've been adapting to dealing with climate change is learning as much as I can about uh, these adaptations and the changes that happen with uh, plants and trying to understand how to make that work for us as gardeners, as opposed to, um, you know, creating problems. What is the climate? When you say arid environment, what exactly do you mean by that? How much, how much precipitation annually does Albuquerque and your, uh, your home garden, how much do they receive each year? Well, I'm in the valley. So in a good year, um, six inches, six to, well, see, and that, that varies also. Yes. North of Albuquerque, um, there's an area, um, the, the village of Corrales, they usually average around 10 inches of rain in a, in a, in a good year. The valley, more like six inches. The West Mesa, there, there's a Doppler effect that it has been, because of the heat rising up off the city, that kind of pushes the storms around the perimeter of the city, which is, I think, why Corrales um, is getting more rain. Um, and that's just my my idea. I don't have any confirmation of that, but it seems like that's probably what's happening. And, and then um, the foothills starting probably at about the 5,000, 5,200 elevation uh, um, mark, that's where the rainfall starts going up to uh, from six inches to eight inches to to highest on the foothills, they may they may get 14 okay. inches in a good year, and and in the foothills, sometimes that's there's snow that's at, that um, you know snow melt that adds to the overall precipitation where it can be snowing east of Wyoming uh, Boulevard, and it can be raining in the rest of the city. So elevation becomes really important um, in terms of water uh, availability and um, therefore soil and natural vegetation. In, <laughs> I'm sorry, but to wrap your head around six inches of natural <laughs> precipitation a year is just that that deserves a little pause right there because that is very, very, very arid. So then talk about what is monsoon and, and the importance of that becomes more clear in the context of that six inches. We split our, our precipitation. The water available, drinking water available is from snowmelt and some of that is from our own mountains, but mostly that's from the Colorado Rockies coming down the Rio Grande. More of our precipitation now is coming from really intense thunderstorms in the summertime. And the monsoon rainfall used to be usually about Fourth um, of July on. It would we'd have these rainstorms that would soak usually the whole city in. More recent times, the the storm cells are more isolated, and so, uh, and th this was always true that it could be really raining at the airport. That can be significantly different than other parts of of town. Now it's even more, it's more intense, and it covers less acreage when uh, when we have storms, and so dealing with runoff with stormwater runoff has become a really important, it's an important resource. Uh, it used to be considered, the way Albuquerque was engineered, all of the arroyos as they came into Albuquerque from the 
east side from the mountainside uh, were paved over in order to protect the property adjacent. What that does is really intensify the flow of water, and it would have been a much better reality to have parks where the arroyos were and to just close the parks during storms because it's a safety issue, um, but it has created uh, some real flushes of moisture into the river. So we get probably half or more of our uh, our precipitation as really intense thunderstorms in the summertime that are the monsoon storms. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with Judith Phillips of the Design Oasis in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Since the 1980s, Judith has been a leader in native plants and garden design, born of the climate of the American Southwest. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Do you notice something about this conversation with Judith? Have you noticed that we have yet to talk about plants? But how incredibly deep her understanding of the waterways and seasonal water cycles and the hydrology and watercourses at play with the geology of her place and her climate is? It's astounding to me, really. I am in awe of this knowledge, this intimacy with the ways of her place that support the plants of her place that Judith is modeling for us right now. And it gives me great hope for me and for you and for those coming up in this tradition of what a gardening life looks like. Because a full-bodied, whole-hearted, to use Brene Brown's lovely term, a whole-hearted gardening life aspires to this kind of intimacy and understanding over time and caring experience. My interest was really sparked when Judith reminded us via her daughter's field of study that what we know as cultural standards are fully ingrained in us by the age of eight. That includes what our place in the world looks like, sounds like, and actually is. Tomorrow, Friday the 23rd of October, I will be the moderator for a full-day conference being held by the Illinois Landscape Contractors Association. The conference, known as IMPACT, has been held for several years, and this year's theme is Building Sustainable Landscapes. There are sessions on eco-beneficial landscapes, reducing salt for winter hardscape management, building better native plant-based landscaping businesses, designing for storm water management, ecological pest management for tree care, and adding art and ecology as a priority, and integrating art and ecology as a priority. Presenters include Valari Talapatra, William Moss, Bartlett Trees, and the Millennium Park Foundation. Earlier this year, I was the evening speaker for the Ecological Landscape Alliance annual conference in Amherst, Mass. And I have to tell you, to see gatherings like this one in Chicago or that one in Massachusetts around global environmental 
concepts and topics like these in the professional, working person levels of our landscaping industry gives me great hope, too. It will only be with changes from all levels in our cultural standards of what is beautiful and what is beneficial and valuable that we begin to see real change in what the green spaces of our ever-increasing cities and urban areas look like and how they are cared for. And only in this way, with change on all levels of these issues, how our landscapes integrate with and impact our broader environments and cultures, will children grow up reaching the age of eight with a more fully embodied concept of places that look like the places they are, with places that consider and include and care for all the lives that live in these places. We're back now to our conversation with Judith Phillips of Design Oasis in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Since the 1980s, Judith has been a proponent of native and climate-adapted gardens born of the biodiversity of their place. Her place is the high desert southwest. As we come back, Judith shares more about her landscape design journey on this very path. What I think is actually interesting is right about the same time, Mountain States Nursery in um, Arizona, uh, Ron Gass was, and I think he he was spurred on by Steve Martino uh, to look at the plants there. And uh, they did a lot of plant exploring into Northern Mexico. And, and uh, he was really very instrumental in propagating at such a scale, uh, developing a nursery at a scale that really um, made a difference in the availability of plants. At the same time, Gail Haggard was starting Plants of the Southwest. I didn't know about Gail until a few years after I was um, knee-deep in trying to figure out how to germinate seeds. And I got most of my information from different papers most of it was about range revegetation. And so some of the things that I thought were beautiful and were garden worthy uh, were not plants. If a cow didn't eat it, it wasn't really something they were interested in. And so it was just really interesting to see um, how we all seem to arrive at the same place in different ways. And getting that information, and, and that's actually my first book was really, I was working part-time for what was in the Soil Conservation Service, um, doing some propagation of revegetation plants so that I could, they had a seed locker there that was like a gold mine that had seed that was older than I was. And so I could take seed from uh, at, at two or three year increments and see when the germination declined. And my surprise was that seed stored properly, a lot of it, um, the germination actually improved over a period of time until uh, maybe 20, 25 years, it would start declining uh, a little bit. So, you know, that's how I learned about after ripening seed and the 
um, started started um, looking to scientific papers to describe what it was that I was observing and dealing with and trying to figure out how to how to overcome some of those um, difficulties in getting the seed to germinate. One of the things about plants native to an arid environment is that they really are uh, chemically very diverse in uh, they don't all ripen. Uh, the seed doesn't all ripen and be and germinate at the same time, and that's to allow a seed bank for the next time there might be the right combination of conditions that the seedlings could actually survive. Well, for somebody trying to propagate and sell plants, that's just you know that doesn't work real well. And uh, so learning about pretreatments um, and and even acid washing. Uh, the seed and then stopping the acid reaction to get through hard seed coats and that sort of thing. You know, that was a real adventure. I, I loved every minute of it. And um, <laughs> not always when people were wanting the plants and I didn't have them, but, <laughs> but I really, I, I'm a lifelong learner and I'm happiest when I'm being just kind of buried in, in new information. And so, uh, and that was actually the way that I think I came to terms with this kind of horrible realization of what climate change really means. Uh, I thought, well, at least I have a front row seat at an amazing series of changes that we're gonna have to learn to adapt to. And watching actually how people have been adapting, this is kind of a tangential uh, thing, but watching how people are adapting to the pandemic is really interesting to me. It's in a way informs some of what I see in the way people react to things in their gardens. Um, it's, uh, um, it's a, you know, kind of a fear of the unknown and um, some people just, they just want a short answer and they don't want to know anymore. Um, other people can't get enough information and really want to dive deep it's uh human beings are a lot harder to understand than plants are yeah yeah <laughs> what was the reception like when you first started your work and you know you you talk about plants are being the heart and soul of your designs but you also mentioned right off the bat that when you first arrived there people were growing the same things that they were growing in Indiana and this process over the last 30 years of introducing plants working with plants trialing plants and then getting people to change their own mindsets on what they wanted to plant and what was beautiful talk to us a little bit about that the first book was kind of accidental <laughs> a lot of our plants are small leafed limber stemmed to withstand the wind uh, so they don't have the visual impact that garden plants from from wetter areas have larger leaves and you know the the statement that plants make visually is is much stronger in plants from wetter uh, climates or from hotter drier places and uh, so I started realizing how important the hardscape was in terms of creating a backdrop to offset plants from so pathways became really important and walls and uh, it 
and I think, and then shade covers. Uh, so, you know, I think I, I kind of backed into designing the hardscape as a way of, of strengthening the, um, the potential of the plants. The other thing that it took me a long time to realize is that a lot of people really like the desert vistas for looking at, but they don't want to live there. And that's it's surprising how long it took me to realize that because I just really love living there. And um, so I, I think that somewhere along the line, I realized that I really um, I wanted to make people feel comfortable living in the desert. So creating these enclosures and, uh, you know, was a way of doing that. That's actually why I called the design part of the business um, design oasis because I really am designing oases for people. Whenever I can, they're, they're landscapes that are based on, um, on arid adapted plants. I teach a plants class to graduate architecture students at UNM, University of New Mexico. And the first class that I taught, I let them choose any four plants they wanted to really dive deep into and describe in detail and and really examine closely. And I didn't check to see what plants they chose. And I think there was only one student out of the 12 that chose arid adapted plants, even though that's what we had been talking about the whole semester. And the rest of them were like swamp things. And I, <laughs> I was so disgusted with myself for not uh, realizing that I should have checked to begin with to see what they were looking at because they didn't know the difference. And I think that's still an issue in uh, trying to figure out how to water landscapes here is if you mix plants from wetter places, like roses grow, summer roses grow quite well here, but they do take more water uh, and, so, and more often than other plants. And so, and it's really hard to get people to do two irrigations zones to to accommodate the plants that need more water more often and the plants that need uh, less water less frequently so uh, you know there there are still a lot of um, I'm and one of the reasons I think that this still remains a real vital and interesting challenge for me is that there are still things that we're not doing well that we could do a whole lot better Clearly, our uh, efforts as, you know, people who are trying to make a difference with our gardens has not made a big enough dent. Even with all of those ways in which we know you can change human behavior, tax them, incentivize them, um, and guilt them into doing what you want them to do. None of those are working. And I think the reason they're not working comes back to what you were just saying is this this trying to connect what people want from their spaces with what uh, they also want to be the long-term outcome. Like they, they have, there has to be this emotional and psychological clarity as to why they're doing it and why that matters to them somehow. My daughter actually gave me a real insight years ago. She started, she, when she was studying early childhood development on her way to becoming an educator, she told me that a lot of our 
standards are set by the time we're about eight years old. And that changing that requires actually active conscious effort. Uh, and I think a lot of people, uh, and certainly this was true of me growing up in the East, I had you know, an extremely green idea of what, um, lush green idea of what a landscape was. I don't know why I fell in love with the desert as easily as I did. Um, it certainly isn't, you know, I, I know that intellectually, it's not the easiest place in the world to love. But there's just something so amazing about what goes on here and the the wealth of life that's here. I, I, I think one of the ways reasons that lawns are, you know, they may they may die of drought easily, but they die as a concept really hard. Really hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that they're mindless. You know, all you have to do well, and I, I actually don't think it's easy to, to grow a, a, a good lawn. I think it's really difficult to grow a, a good lawn because it's ecologically it, that that model doesn't exist anywhere on the planet. Um, so um, I it, I think that it is soothing negative space. I think plants gardens that are based on plant diversity. I think people find um, sometimes really chaotic. Uh, and sometimes they are, but sometimes that's just poor design, actually, because I know people have a anxiousness about too many different plant species. I, I try to include as much as I can, but stop short, way short of where I could go if it was my own space. And I, I, I think that there are plenty of ways to make it coherent. First of all, layering the, the canopy so that uh, you have plants of different sizes and densities and heights and masses to uh, to play off all the smaller plants against. And then I use uh, the the understory plants, the small, any, any kind of ground cover plants and, and wildflowers and grasses as, uh, as extra water sources so that the, the larger plants, the, the trees and the Larger shrubs actually have moist soil to root out to and share water with those plants. And so, you know, it's kind of building a landscape in layers. And then uh, by the structure of the plants, you can also create repetition of the plants. You can, uh, or repetition of colors or repetition of forms, you can, uh, you know, create a, a coherent vision for for people and definitely having destinations to go to so that's why i love paths because you can really help make sense of diversity uh, by uh, meandering a path and you need that path to actually go and do the maintenance that you're going to do on the plants just a lot of different strategies and i think one of the things that that still really needs to change i i really dislike when i see the top 10 plants for, um, you know, when you look at, at the top 10 plants that are on any uh, magazine or, um, you know, list of top 10 plants, if there's, if there's one of them that works well in the arid Southwest, uh, that's, that's really something. Um, you know, it's, uh, um, 
landscape, and part of the reason that I'm teaching this class to landscape architecture students is that I have a real problem with landscape architects who have a palette of about 12 plants that they use everywhere. Um, and a lot of landscape contractors do the same thing and, um, and landscape designers. And it's just, and I realize it's because they know those plants well and they feel they're confident that they're going to respond the way they think they're going to. Um, but, you know, that's just so, that's, that's such poverty of, of planting. Uh, it's just so sad. And it, the real thing that I think is a problem with that is that it, it makes ordinary people think that that's the standard. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with Judith Phillips of Design Oasis in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where, since the 1980s, Judith has been a leader in native plants and garden design born of the climate of the Southwest. In February of this year, Judith was recognized by the Land and Water Summit held annually for her amazing contributions to the ecological landscaping in New Mexico and the Southwest generally. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week. Judith's use of the word poverty just before the break really, really struck me. It was sort of a sick gut check, in fact. Such a harsh but apt word for so much of how we have so-called, quote, landscaped, unquote, our human-built lives. Just a few weeks ago, I was driving through a new development in my own town, a town in a rich growing region, a biodiversity hotspot on our planet, a region whose iconic golden summer rolling hills dotted with green oaks are recognizable by people around the world. And once you got one block into this development, you could have been anywhere, Indiana, Ohio, Kansas, Colorado, Florida. Non-fruiting ornamental blobs lined the streets. Green grass had been rolled out smotheringly from Hellstrip to building, and this chemical-soaked wet blanket of turf was stuck through in places with equally unrecognizable smaller blobs of generic shrub and unseasonal so-called annual color at a time of year in this Mediterranean climate when annual color is jarringly out of place. This default version of, quote, landscape, which is not only inappropriate to this place, but costly and damaging and absolutely not deserving of the word gardened, this is a profoundly negative bar for our cities and counties and states and culture at large to set and accept. It is a negative feedback loop between landscapers and property owners and therefore suppliers and growers, diminishing our palate to visual and environmental and psychic poverty. 
disconnected from everything around us. This negative feedback loop compounds so many other problems attached to it, from water quality to air quality to aesthetics to economics to what the next generation sees all around them and grows up learning as, quote, the plants of their place, end quote. Especially when you consider the fact that we are only becoming more developed and urbanized. If this poverty of imagination and plant literacy and life itself is the standard we are going to set and accept, then we are doomed. We are a large, large population of people who consider ourselves to be gardeners. We are the ones who can help. Conscientious and thoughtful and caring gardening is an act of proactive faith and love and resistance and fierce activism with gardens and gardeners that cultivate self and community and place and that positively interface and interconnect with all the larger lives on whom we depend from the seasonal seeds stocked up for the next growing season to late summer skippers visiting the late blooming salvia to the birds making their way down the Pacific Flyway for winter, to the rattlesnakes preparing for a winter sleep, and chorus frogs soon to gather in seasonal moist spots to sing us through the rainy season. Well, with gardens and gardeners interwoven into the fabric of their places like this, maybe, maybe we stand a chance of creatively growing better, a world who so desperately needs us to do just that, from right where we are, with our own loving human impulse to garden. If you're just joining us, this is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation with Judith Phillips of Design Oasis in New Mexico. Judith's 1995 book set, published by the Museum of New Mexico, includes Natural by Design and Plants for Natural Gardens, profiling hundreds of native plants of the high desert appropriate for home garden cultivation. As we come back, Judith shares her personal mission of advocating not only good coherent design, but an abundance of biodiversity in our gardens. My activism is just trying to get people of all, whether it's professionals or um, my clients or um, school kids or, you know, trying to get people to realize how lucky we are. And I think actually in New Mexico, because we have such a range of elevation, so many different ecological niches that that people here maybe, even without being conscious of it, are more grateful for the diversity that we have here. It um you don't you know you you actually drive across town and you're in a different um ecosystem whether you know it or or not um the it feels different it and it should look different and um i i think your description of of looking down your street is um 
we don't have lawns on my street, but um, I think I could count on two hands the uh, diversity of, of plants along the street. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's uh, trying to, I, I think, actually, I think one of the things that is baffling to me is people seem to um, compartmentalize things. Like uh, years ago, uh, a woman who I knew was very knowledgeable about wildflowers um, uh, told me, well, they belong out there. And she's a gardener. She would never put them in her home landscape. They belong out there. They don't belong in my garden. Um, and, uh, you know, that really surprised me. Um, and, it, you know, it's just the, the, the way people put things in boxes that don't exist is interesting to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and you've been at this work for 50 years and we still have a long ways to go. Ugh. One of the ways we get there is through the beautiful work of people like you out there on the ground across the, the country and you advocating beautifully and fiercely for this greater diversity, greater understanding, greater contextualization and greater beauty and lushness of a sort. Your books in the mid-1990s Plants for Natural Gardens and Natural by Design really kind of offer out a vision for what um, gardens that are oases, that are a little more lush versions or iterations of the diversity available to us outside the garden gate and help to kind of blur that line between the two, but still um, add this sense of comfort or oasis, as you say, for the people who are living in the space without damaging what's outside the space. Um, talk to us about, you know, what y your process for getting to these books and, um, and the kind of reception for them, because they are still standards in the industry. I wanted to expand upon what was in the first book. In the first book, I limited the plant selection to plants that uh, were being grown or were easily grown. And, and that first book was Southwestern Landscaping with Native Plants. The second two, actually the second two, it's funny. I, um, the Museum of New Mexico Press was, was the publisher of that, those books also. And uh, I was working with a wonderful editor uh, there who you know, we talked about what the books were going to be and we sorted the plants by ecosystems uh, so that we had, you know, the sorted the plants so people would understand if they lived in the foothills or um, the mesa um, or the valley, you know, what the implications would be. And so I wrote the essays about the different plant communities first and uh, because they were wanting to get going on this, I, I sent them, I took them that information and then started working on the individual plant descriptions. And um, when I submitted that part of the manuscript, my editor said, this is gonna be a doorstop. Um, this, is, this is too big. And I 
told her, I, I really don't think that any of this is expendable. I think we, <laughs> um, so she had the idea of making it two books. And she said, let's see how difficult it is to split this into two books. And it was, it, it was not difficult at all. We had to go through and, and check for some, you know, it was really just, you know, phrasing in some places. It was, it was a really minimal amount of, and then um, I guess the um, the keys that that uh, show what plant community you're in, and um, you know, we had to develop those for both books so people could use them together. But the idea was that you know, people who just wanted the design information could just have the one book, and people who wanted the plant information and the there's a cross reference there so that people don't have the detailed plant information, but they have the potential for what plants are are best used in those places. Um, so uh, uh, that was a that was kind of an interesting um, an interesting thing to me that it was so easy to um, to separate the two the idea from the from the content in in some ways. It was a lovely solution, and it makes it manageable and, as you say, cross cross referenceable. Tell us about your garden. What does your garden look like these days, Judith? I chose the place that I live because it's real central and it's just north of Old Town Albuquerque and it's walking distance to downtown. And I love this neighborhood, but I have 500, about 500 square feet of space to garden in. And what was, what was by the front door, there were only two plants in the, Actually, there were three plants. There's a, a ornamental pear, which is still there in the parking strip by the street. And then uh, there were two Russian sage right by the front door. And I, the woman I was buying the house from, I uh, said, you know, the first thing I'm going to do is tear those out. Um, because I think Russian sage actually has more potential for being a noxious weed than than most of the plants that we've introduced in the last 20 years or so. It's too well adapted here. They also look terrible in the wintertime. <laughs> so I had, I called, of course, the the number to have the utility lines spotted for me. And it was like, I had a plaid front yard. Um, there's very little place to, to plant anything. So I marked out the places where I could actually dig and plant. And then I, Got. I had a couple of big galvanized stock tanks that I w w actually was using for propagation at the farm, and I um, have been growing in those over where most of the utility lines are concentrated. <laughs> uh, so in my front garden, I have an uh, Arizona rosewood, Apache plume, a couple of Hesperallos, of uh, three different varieties of lavender, a manzanita, a clary sage, uh, a couple of ephedra, a creosote bush, and, um, and um, a desert mule's ears. Uh, that's a native sunflower that's wonderful. Um, and uh, that's in a space that's probably about uh, 30 feet wide by eight feet deep and it it's um, very organized and coherent looking. And then uh, there's there's a, 
a native daisy fleabane that blows in and there's some other plants oh there's a couple of turpentine bush that just blew in the apache plume actually blew in i didn't plant it originally um in the drainage way on the west side of my house that's about 40 feet long and seven feet wide i have a fig and um i have major wheeler honeysuckle to screen me from uh, my neighbor across the wall and um, a couple of apricot trees that freeze every year and I really um, I'm thinking about um, planting a for one of the apricots at least I'm thinking of planting a pomegranate um, and then the understory I planted some yerba manza which is native in the bosque and there's a rosemary for using in the kitchen and and some garlic chives for the same purpose they actually just came in with another plant and and a couple of roses that David Salmon from High Country gave me, uh, they're uh, from Iran and they have really large rose hips. They look like our native woods rose, but they're, they have really uh, large showy rose hips. Um, and, I and then the understory changes all the time. Originally it was the daisy fleabane when I first moved in, I saw that there and I thought that's probably what it was. So I was just going to leave it and see what would happen. I've been just letting it change and I, I call it sorting weeds. I go out there about every two weeks, every three weeks, and I just uh, pull out anything that is either going to seed that I don't want too much more of or because there's a, a carrot, a native carrot that's out there that, well, I don't know if it's a native. It's a carrot showed up um, and it's carrot family. I don't know exactly what it is, but that's starting to go to seed now. And so I'm gonna pull a lot of that out because I don't want much more of it. Um, I also have um, Flanders poppy that I actually brought in. Uh, there's some of it in the neighborhood and it's actually, that's been increasing in Albuquerque. It's really been interesting to watch. It grows much, more easily here than California poppy or our own native Mexican gold poppy. For a short period of time, it's really so beautiful and it's early and the birds seem to like the seed. Um, so, and I love the seed capsules on poppies. So I just let that run amok and then pull it out once it's finished. Anyway, I just really enjoy sorting the weeds in my uh, drainage way there to see what's coming up and what's what's decreasing on its own without me tampering with it. Um, it's, uh, here again, it's lessons learned. I love the entire image that I have now in my head of your garden full of an amazing array of diversity that you just itemized for us um, in a relatively small space. And I think that's a great image to kind of go away with as a hopeful one. When you think about your work over these last many years and your kind of hopes for the future or, or optimism, you might feel, what would be aspects of that, Judith? Well, I think that um, my students really embody that every semester there um, are one or two students who are just so open to learning and so interested in the world around them that I feel great hope from them because, and 
you know, the reason I'm teaching this class is so that there there is a higher bar set for for what professionals what's expected of professionals plant wise and i feel like they're the ones that are going to go out there and actually get that work done and they're already making a difference because i've been teaching that class for about 20 years there are already several of those of the students who have been making a significant difference in their communities and you know, so that really gives me a lot of hope. And then it's the plants themselves. I think, um, you know, that before it was, it's the economy stupid. I think, no, it's the plants stupid. Um, it's, <laughs> we just uh, let them teach us, uh, you know, really uh, enjoy and explore. And, you know, to me, you know, one of the things that's happened recently in Albuquerque is, Vidoro is one of our um, one of the country's newest national wildlife refuges. It's one of the few urban refuges. It's in the South Valley of Albuquerque on a former dairy farm, and it's now under transition, going from pastures to a habitat. Um, the friends of Vidoro, we've started a um, Albuquerque backyard refuge certification program and you know the certifying is not so interesting to me as making people aware of the the options they have for plants to use as habitat and making them aware of the life that's still around them i had a client just tell me yesterday that you know she moved to new mexico from wisconsin and she lived out in the country in wisconsin and she said she felt like she was a small part of a larger community and that most of her fellow community members had wings or fur. Uh, and she said that, you know, that's what she wants to do with her garden here is, you know, make that um, a refuge for herself and for the wildlife that, uh, and I think that's one of the big advantages that Albuquerque still has. We have so much open space still around us that our uh, native uh, flora and fauna hasn't been destroyed to the point where you can't get out fairly close by and see what's the potential for what you could have in your own garden if you uh, want it. And so, you know, I there's hope there. You know, there's yeah. there are things happening that uh, that make me very hopeful and. And I actually don't read newspapers anymore. That's really um, <laughs> uh, improved my outlook considerably. There's hope. <laughs> oh, well, congratulations on your award, your well-deserved award this spring. And I'm just so proud to speak with you after this many years of of your work enriching my gardens in the various places I have lived. Thank you very much for your time today. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. It's really been um, enjoyable. I, I just love the fact that you're putting this out there for, for people because you're another part of this you know, extension of you know, making people aware of what's possible. I think that's a big part of what we still have to do. Judith Phillips is a renowned landscape designer based in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where for the past 30 years she has been an advocate, 
activist and leader in native plant and climate-adapted garden design, the goals of which are beautiful and livable spaces within the limits of an extreme environment, providing benefits to not only humans, but the land and wildlife of her place as well. Judith is a founding member of the Xeriscape Council and principal of Design Oasis, a design and consulting service specializing in ecosystem-inspired landscapes. Judith's design projects include more than 1,500 gardens in New Mexico, Colorado, and Arizona. Her experience researching and propagating native and adaptive landscape ornamentals informs her work as a designer and garden writer. Judith is an advocate of landscaping with native and xeric plants because she sees their resilience as our hope for a greener future. She has written five books and numerous articles encouraging people to garden with a passion for the high desert. She speaks regionally on water conservation, native and arid adapted plants and design, habitat gardening, and related subjects. She teaches a plants class in the Landscape Architecture Program at the University of New Mexico. In February of this year, Judith was recognized by the Land and Water Summit, held annually, for her amazing contributions to the ecological landscaping in New Mexico and the Southwest, an award well-deserved for a long and passionate career still in progress. Join us again next week when we kick off a seed season series with a revisit to the United Kingdom's Claire Foster, speaking with us about growing garden flowers from seed. It might help you fill out your early seed order. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and listener-supported through CultivatingPlace.com. For many photos of the Southwest plants, garden, and award-winning advocacy of garden designer Judith Phillips, head over to CultivatingPlace.com for many photos perfect to enjoy at the end of a long, hot growing season. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Joel. Jennifer Joel